Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Today, I'm talking to Peter Gagan from Open Democracy and Jennifer Cobb from the Trust and Technology Initiative here in Cambridge. We're going to be discussing Cambridge Analytica, money, power, corruption, cronyism. What really is the problem with our politics? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If you enjoy listening to Talking Politics, you'll definitely enjoy reading the LRB. That's why they publish a reading list of relevant writing from the archive to accompany every episode on lrb.co.uk and also why you, Talking Politics listeners, are invited to subscribe for just £1 an issue via the URL lrb.me talk. That's lrb.me slash talk. Talking Politics, in partnership with the London Review of Books. Peter, Jennifer, maybe we could start with um, Cambridge Analytica, because a report was published earlier this month, as I'm sure you know, from the UK Information Commissioner's Office. I think it was a three-year investigation into Cambridge Analytica and what really happened. And for many people, the results were underwhelming. People who thought Cambridge Analytica was the big, bad bogeyman of recent democracy. One of the implications of that report is that Cambridge Analytica weren't really doing anything that different from what other people do anyway. So this view that there was something special about this firm. They had some super new technology, new techniques, that the money was allowing them to do things that no one else knew or understood. That was kind of flim-flam. If they projected that, it was snake oil. They were just doing regular, slightly sinister, but in a conventional way, regular campaigning and maybe around the edges misinformation. Almost it was saying there's nothing really to see here. Is that how you read it? I think generally, yes, that's, that seems to be essentially the case. So the ICO, the Information Commissioner's Office, sent this letter to the DCMS Select Committee um, at the start of October. This is following on from the ICO's investigation into Cambridge Analytica. What we can tell from this is that the Cambridge Analytica weren't really involved in the referendum campaign, for example, other than some really very early work for, I think, Vote Leave, analysing UKIP membership data. And in the US, they did do some analysis of voter data and did help target people with advertising on Facebook on behalf of the Trump campaign. But the extent of their role in that campaign isn't entirely clear. But yes, the ICO's letter is is straightforwardly, it does say that Cambridge Analytica weren't really doing anything particularly unusual in terms of their actual analytics. They do seem to have had some particularly poor data handling practices. But what they were actually doing with the data was not really different from what other parties and campaigns have done for years. Although where I would strongly depart from the ICU is that they seem to think that the fact that they were doing the same kind of thing as other campaigns means that this is all fine. Whereas I think the fact that a lot of campaigns do this is itself a real problem. As far as I'm concerned, apart from what Cambridge Analytica were potentially doing with the Trump campaign to help suppress Clinton's potential vote in 2016, the fact that they weren't doing much different to other campaigns doesn't mean that everything's fine and we should ignore it. We do have real reasons to be concerned about how data is used in political campaigning. And we have real reasons to be concerned about how micro-targeting allows really questionable (laughs) electoral practices. Peter, how do you, you've written a fair bit about Cambridge Analytica. How do you see it now? What do you think is the, if there is one, what do you think is the scandal here? I think there's almost two 
almost two unrelated or kind of related issues with Cambridge Analytica. The first is the issues that Jennifer raises that are, and it's in the ICO report as well, Elizabeth Denham, who is the Information Commissioner for the United Kingdom, kind of said it in her response to the Parliamentary Select Committee. She talked about how SEL, Cambridge Analytica, were using very similar methods and processes that were commonly used across the piece. So I think one of the reasons this was a big scandal is, although these things are commonly used, the ICO were saying it, others were saying it too, I think a lot of people were really surprised to find out that this goes on, that this type of surveillance goes on from political campaigns and political operatives and political initiatives. So I think that's one of the reasons Cambridge Analytica was such a big scandal. It was that people were really surprised to find out that they could be targeted in this way. Whether that's successful or not, I think that's a huge issue. I think Jennifer's totally right. I think we've had this thing where we've gone, oh, this is fine because no laws were broken. But I think one of the reasons Cambridge Analytica resonated so much with people wasn't whether they broke specific aspects of data protection law or not, or whether they did something that was beyond the realms of what the ICO or another similar body liked. It was the actual content of what they were doing. So I think that's one big issue. And the second reason I think Cambridge Analytica was such a huge scandal uh, was just the kind of players that were involved. We saw Channel 4 News, Carrick Water the Guardian, a lot of reporting on it too. Like, looking at just how that company operated and some of the things that they were found to be boasting of undercover, like their ability to kind of get involved with elections. And we did see them get involved with elections in other parts of the world that were far more aggressive than what we know about what they did with the Trump campaign. You know, for example, in Trinidad and Tobago, they ran this campaign that was all about basically voter suppression, trying to split the electorate into Afro-Caribbean and Afro-Indian and basically running a campaign telling people not to vote, which was going to be something that was going to and did eventually suppress the Afro-Caribbean vote and benefited the Afro-Indian vote in Trinidad and Tobago. Some similar things happened in Kenya as well. But I think that once you zoom out of it, there's a much bigger question with all of this, which is, is this okay? Is this something that we should just allow to happen in political campaigning? And I think that's one of the reasons Cambridge Analytica kind of sparked such a chord with people. It did play into this idea that like Russia had been involved in meddling elections and all the rest of it. And I think there's a tendency to see this purely in terms of that voters are manipulatable just by advertisements or voters can be, a single voter can be targeted in this way and told to do something that they don't want to do. And I think that misunderstands the way this kind of communication works. What's basically happened is small political consultancies, like Cambridge Analytica, it's a small political consultancy which actually grew out of the military-industrial complex, you know, a great defence contractor that used to work for, you, for the British government, they set up shop, and what they're very, very able to do is kind of seed messages, seed misinformation into a kind of much wider ecosystem. And there's a kind of pleasure of these organisations operating at any one time. In my book, I kind of conserved the estimate, it's about five or 600 dotted around the world that do similar things. And the problem is they've taken advantage of a complete lack of any regulation around this. And the regulation just comes down to Facebook, essentially. A lot of these, until the last couple of years, we maybe could talk about that, but until about the last two years, almost all political campaigning online has taken place through Facebook. And really the problem is we've outsourced the regulation of democracy to Facebook. So it depends on what Facebook lets you do or Facebook doesn't let you do. And I think that's a much bigger problem than whether someone's broken ICO regulations or not. And Jennifer, you made that point in the piece that you wrote in The Guardian a few days ago, you, you said two things that really stood out for me, one of which was that the some of the perception around Cambridge Analytica is a kind of inversion of this idea of technological determinism, that we live in this 
extraordinary age of technological innovation. So we have this tendency to think that the technology is doing and is responsible for everything. And so therefore, if an election happens and we don't like the result, somehow some sophisticated technology we don't really understand must lie behind it. And it seems that that bubble has been burst by this report. But the other side of it that Peter says, it points to the real problem, which is Facebook. And the fact not that doing this kind of electioneering is hard and requires you know, incredibly sophisticated tech people to do it in secret. It's easy. In a sense, it's the opposite lesson we should learn from this. It's not that you need to hire the very few people in the world who know how to do this. Facebook means anyone can do it. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if you remember, but uh, John Norton and I were on this podcast in March 2018, mm. sort of just after the Cambridge Analytica story sort of really blew up into a scandal when Chris Wiley went public. And I think we both said then that the real problem wasn't really Cambridge Analytica. It wasn't even really just Facebook. It was sort of surveillance capitalism and, and the role of the, these companies in society more generally. So say you've got like mushrooms growing in your garden and you want to get rid of them. You can cut the mushrooms away all you like, but unless you get at the underground structure that produces mushrooms, you're not actually solving the problem and the mushrooms will come back. Well, in this analogy, Cambridge Analytica is one mushroom of of many, and Facebook and other platforms that use this kind of business model are that underground structure. And like people like Peter have, of course, been banging this drum as well, but I think it's a shame that much of the conversation around micro-targeting is still so focused on Cambridge Analytica and hasn't really moved on to talk about these bigger, more fundamental problems. I think perhaps now with the the report that's come out from the ICO, we might begin to see a shift in that conversation. But I think, you know, Facebook makes this thing really, really very easy to do. And I think it's no surprise that people saw Facebook's targeted advertising tools and decided they were an excellent way to try to influence the political process. It wasn't just predictable. It was predicted by people back in the early 2010s. And I think there was a degree of complacency about this where people just assumed, oh, that wouldn't really be a problem. Why would we bother looking into this? It's just the Internet. And I think that mindset really has to change. And Peter, I, when I was reading your book, Democracy for Sale, I was thinking about this because I think it connects to the other big theme of that book, which is, and you touched on it just then, I mean, let's call it cronyism rather than corruption. And one of the things that Cambridge Analytica, the story reveals is this little network of contacts, these revolving doors between a relatively small group of people and the fact that in government, in campaigning, in electioneering, people often turn to familiar friends let's call them and money changes hands it's almost by default because you turn to the person who's who's sort of next to you and it happens that these people often hang out together there's a sort of similar theme in in your book about the role of money in contemporary democracy particularly UK democracy there's a tendency sometimes to think well what must be going on here is really powerful rich wealthy people are doing something big and sophisticated with their money and the impact of money on politics it kind of belongs to the very few and the most dangerous corporate or political players whereas actually in a way what you reveal is something similar to the data harvesting facebook story it's not that it's so hard and you need a lot of money it's so easy and you don't need much money this is this is about small amounts of money exchanging hands between relatively few people it's more it's an open door thing than it's something very buried and sinister or am I misreading your your book no I would very much agree with that just you know to take the Cambridge Analytica side of for a second you're talking about a small company run by a small number of people people like Alexander Nix Eaton educated well connected into departments of Whitehall particularly the Ministry of Defence and you can cascade out from there 
And a very similar thing happens across the piece in British politics. One of the most interesting interviews I thought I did for my book was I interviewed a former government minister, Guto Beb, and actually a former member of the European Research Group, which is a very interesting example, this kind of small cadre of pro-Brexit backbench Tory MPs is a very good example, I think, of the role that small amounts of money and dedicated groups can have in British politics. And Goto Beb said to me, you know, there's a small amount of money goes a long way in British politics. And he said, if I had a quarter million pounds, I'd give it to a think tank if I wanted to influence politics. You know, we have things like anonymously funded think tanks, which don't have huge budgets compared to especially to America. It's very small amounts of money. And rarely is it this depiction, as we're Recording this, David Hare's series Roadkill is on at the moment, very famous David Hare, the, the kind of screenwriter of British politics. And it's all very scary. There's a lot of bad guys in it, just James Bond kind of pastiche at times. But it's all about big nefarious people behind big doors and big, huge amounts of money. But and actually, can I just what, say, having having seen the first episode, it's also not particularly plausible just on a dramatic level, but let's park that. I would agree with you on that one too. I found aspects of the drama less than plausible. And everything happens after someone falls in bed with somebody they've just met. And then but in that, bed, they do some exposition and explain what's going on. Anyway, let's park that. But yes, what I found more and more in British politics is it's less about having, you know, kind of huge amounts of money from kind of scary men uh, stroking cats and more about these kind of personal relationships and this kind of I think the word cronyism is a very good word to describe it you know even in the last few months we've seen it in Britain we saw a scandal involving the housing minister Robert Jenrick who admitted showing apparent bias in reversing a planning decision that benefited a conservative donor Richard Desmond that happened after they'd sitting next to each other at a Conservative Party fundraiser, which cost Desmond the princely sum of £12,000, which in Washington wouldn't get you a meeting with a lobbyist, probably, never mind access to a government minister. And what I thought was really telling after that was Nadim Zahari, who's a, a junior minister in the government, was on the Today programme and he was asked about this. You know, what is it about? Is this not a problem that you can buy access to political power very cheaply? And he said, no, no, it just means anyone can go to a Conservative Party fundraiser and have access to a minister. And I think that's a huge part of this. You know, There's a thing called the Leaders Group of Conservative Donors. So if you give more than £50,000 a year to the Conservative Party once a quarter, you will get a meeting with the Prime Minister and other senior cabinet ministers. It'll be off the record. No notes are kept. No record is kept of who attends. And I know from speaking to some former donors that that can be an opportunity to lobby as well. And what goes behind that is it's not necessarily that everyone who gives money to a political party is looking to lobby. But what then comes down the track, and I think we've really seen it in recent months with the COVID crisis, is that you then have access to government just becomes... It becomes just the way you do things. You know, politicians start off, say, working for a consultancy like Deloitte, then they go into government. Funders give money to parties who are also connected to similar companies. You have a meeting. And I think this is what is a huge aspect of British politics. It's a bit like the analogy Jennifer used for the mushrooms in your garden. If this was just a couple of scary people giving huge amounts of money and buying political parties and in a kind of conspiracy, that is something that you could actually just cut the heads off those toadstools and they would, you'd hope that they'd go away. But actually the undergirding structure is that our parties rely on private money. We don't have a system like in Europe, it's a different conversation, but a system in which uh, political parties are funded by the public purse. So they will have to go out and seek donations. And we've actually seen in recent weeks the Labour Party, which some people have criticised it for not being very vocal on funding scandals, 
has actually Keir Starmer's just kind of quietly announced that they're going to echo the Conservative Leaders Group. I think they're calling it the chair. The chair group of top donors will get certain access to the the leader of the opposition, as they hope will be eventually the prime minister before party conferences and, and things like that. And so rather than, I think, actually trying to tackle this, I feel like it's almost becoming more embedded, this sort of uh, way of doing things in British politics. One of the things, I mean, this is a question for both of you, really, but one of the things I've always found really hard to wrap my head around, and, and Peter, you describe it in your book. So we're not talking about huge sums of money, 50,000, 100,000. You can do a lot, as you say, with that, and a lot of it depends how you channel it and setting up little sort of shell organizations. Um, and yet, then when we talk about tech, we're talking about money on a scale that most people can't wrap their heads around. You know, through this pandemic, there have been days where Jeff Bezos has woken up $20 billion richer than he was the night before. I'm just looking at my phone, the value of Facebook went up 2.36% yesterday on the New York Stock Exchange. So that's I don't know, 20 billion or something. I can't wrap my head around this. I can't wrap my head around the kind of mismatch between the scale and the power and the money in tech, particularly, but not just in tech, and the way that money works in politics. I mean, even in America, the scale of the wealth of the, the big technology companies is in a different universe from the amount of money you need to influence Washington politics. How are we meant to think about this? I can't do it in my own head. I completely agree. If you look at the American presidential election, the Trump campaign has burned through about a, a billion dollars that they've raised in fundraising in the last few years, very unsuccessfully. The Biden campaign is taking in records amounts of money, far more money than the Trump campaign, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, which traditionally we would have saw as huge sums of money. But the pandemic is betraying just this huge gulf between kind of Silicon Valley tech giants and even political parties. And the story of Facebook over the last six weeks, it's been very, very interesting, or maybe a little bit longer. We know Mark Zuckerberg had private meetings with Donald Trump. And you imagine those two men are in a room together. Ask yourself in some ways, who is the most powerful in that relationship? Zuckerberg is a multi-billionaire now. He controls not just Facebook, he controls Instagram, he controls WhatsApp, he controls the social media tools by which someone like Donald Trump got elected in the first place. You know, I think it's fair to say, not to do a Cambridge Analytica or anything like that, but without the internet, could you have seen the Trump campaign ever succeeding in 2016? It was completely integral to it. So you could argue that in that situation, Trump is subservient to Zuckerberg. And what you've seen, I think, in the last few weeks is having previously been very standoffish in terms of kind of action, Facebook has been a lot more vocal because they now are worried about the prospect of a new administration potentially doing something about them. So they've done things like removing QAnon, which is this um, conspiracy theory. QAnon sites from across the platform become a lot more active on COVID misinformation and disinformation. But if you can imagine what happens with a future president, if it is President Biden, that kind of power dynamic, that power disparity will remain. And Facebook has, and not just Facebook, Silicon Valley across the piece, Google as well, they're huge, huge companies. And they almost don't need to lobby politicians in the way we used to traditionally do it. They do not need to give money to political parties because they can lobby through the assets that they have and the sheer weight and size that they have. The European Union, I think, has at times tried to hold Facebook to account and to other kind of tech giants to account. They have struggled. In Westminster, it's not happened at all. We've seen Mark Zuckerberg 
refuse a number of invites to come and give evidence before a parliamentary committee. So it's quite clear, I think, that the direction of travel is is that the power dynamic is completely skewed. And you can have somebody like Nick Clegg, the former Deputy Prime Minister, now a Vice President at Facebook. And when Mark Zuckerberg was um, invited to give evidence to parliamentary Department of Culture, Media and Support, select committee investigation into kind of what was called fake news. He didn't turn up, but Richard Allen turned up on behalf of Facebook. Richard Allen's a former Lib Dem MP, is now a peer in the House of Lords. So you had this kind of curious site of British democracy where you have a lobbyist who's also a life peer giving evidence before a parliamentary committee, making very feeble excuses about why his boss won't turn up. And I think that's a really good example of the mismatch in power between elected politicians and the people at the top of tech companies. Jennifer, I'm going to put it like this, this is probably making it too sort of schematic, but there seem to be, if you think about the relationship between, say, Facebook or Google and government, whether it's UK government, US government, wherever, three kind of potential issues here, one of which is is simply money and influence, and let's call it lobbying. The second is the fact that government is dependent on these technologies. You, know, you, you, can't, you can't run a government department without using Google, I assume. And you know, Facebook and Google, and we're seeing it in the US, there is some pushback because you know, it's the start of this antitrust, potential antitrust investigation into Google for its monopolistic practices. But with the current monopolies they have, there's just, you know, using your analogy, this is just the turf on which government operates. And then there's that question of cronyism and connections, a kind of revolving door. And it's true in the UK as well as in the US between government and some of these companies, people who work for government going to work for Google and vice versa. Can you sort of separate those out? Which is the one that worries you most there of those three things in the relationship between government and big tech? I think of those three things, the thing that would worry me most is the dependency on these companies. It's all well and good trying to persuade government to try to you know change its relationship with them. But while they remain dependent on them, that's going to be very difficult to do. But I think also it's not just government that's dependent on these companies. It's kind of society as a whole now. And I think we need to stop thinking of them as just being tech companies or just being sort of like internet services. They're kind of now in many ways the sort of technical infrastructure that our society depends on. And they have a huge amount of discretion in in designing their platforms, whether it's the user interface or the algorithms that disseminate content or the targeting systems. And those systems can be used or gamed by by political campaigns or by people who have slightly more nefarious kind of goals to disseminate, you know, conspiracy theories, disinformation, uh, extreme violent extremism and all this kind of thing. And I think we should really consider them at this point to be, you know, really critical infrastructure for society, especially now that with the pandemic, we've all moved online in ways that we weren't really before although it had been growing over the last 15 years we've now become much more dependent on them and I think we need to consider their political effects as critical infrastructure and I think we need to regulate them as tightly as we would any other critical infrastructure. Langdon Winner wrote in about 1980 about how the design of even like seemingly mundane ancient technologies like bridges can produce long-term policy effects and I think we should treat the design and maintenance of digital infrastructure like social platforms in much the same way as we do the design and maintenance of real physical infrastructure like bridges. And we have to be aware of the role that they now play in politics, in society and in government. And I think we have to be much more active in, in intervening on them because the level of discretion they have and the level of power that they have as a result is, I think, a real serious problem for society as a whole. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I want to come back at the end to the question of regulation, what we could do about it. But j- just to pick up on that point about COVID and the pandemic, on the one hand, it's revealed our dependency on the basic infrastructure over which there is, seems to be relatively little democratic control. And then on the other hand, Peter, you've written about this in a piece you've got coming out in the London Review of Books. It's also given us a kind of snapshot of some of the cronyism too. So certainly in the UK case, there's this question, why, why has Britain on the whole done worse, I mean, it's relative here, but done worse um, during this pandemic in its policy responses. And there are lots of different explanations. It could be demographic, it could be to do with the structure of British political life and so on. I mean, the basic constitutional or devolved structure. But you suggest it's also got a lot to do with the fact that the default of British government, and this isn't a party political point. I mean, as you say, there's a Labour side to this too. There's a Lib Dem side to this too. The default of government in Britain is a kind of cronyism. That is not the deeply corrupt kind, but you just, you give the contracts to the people who you know. You give the contracts because it's easier. It's kind of lazy. It's almost, it's not corrupt. It's it's lazier than in other places. That's what I took from your account. Just to circle back to the very start briefly, actually, in the same way as, in some ways, the conversation around Cambridge Analytica is more interesting about what it betrays about how politics in the world works than whether a specific micro-targeting of voters works. The pandemic, I think, in Britain is less about the number of deaths and whether Britain's had more deaths than other places, but the efficacy of what Britain has done in the British approach to it and why decisions were made the way they were. And it's really striking what I mean by that. If you think about Back in March, as the pandemic started to hit Italy, became increasingly aware that we all could start to see in our television screens, warnings started coming out from all around the world that this was going to happen. And the government in Westminster realised this too, albeit quite late compared to some other states. But a couple of interesting things happened then. The decision was made that Britain needed a lot of PPE, personal protective equipment, which is correct. Lots of countries needed it. So how to source this? How to go about this? What would you do? The government decided to bring in the accountancy firm Deloitte into the cabinet office. The junior minister in the cabinet office is Chloe Smith, who used to be a consultant at Deloitte and has been close to the company for a long time. To bring the company in, Deloitte then are in charge of kind of hiring companies across Britain, around the world to source PPE. There's very little evidence Deloitte had any experience of sourcing PPE equipment. They're an accountancy firm. And it's quite clear from talking to people like I've done who were involved, who tried to get in touch with Deloitte to try and help, that they couldn't get through, that this whole system didn't work. And we also know quite clearly that the amount of PPE just didn't, you know, lots of PPE didn't arrive. Huge sums of money were spent because what happened in Britain was the traditional procurement processes were suspended so you could, departments could just give money out straight. A lot of that money then went to companies that were close to government, that were run by people who seemed to have a connection into government. And a lot of the time, it seems to have been just because it was, let's call that person up. They might know about this. 
you know, we published a story on open democracy about Andrew Gilligan, the former um, former Sunday Times journalist who's now working in number 10, ringing around labs looking for tests. This is kind of April sort of time, so which is quite unbelievable. This is how this was being run internally. And I think it, it speaks a lot to the way things are being run. It's a kind of quite a cronyist approach where you just go and get the people around you. Whether that's somebody like Dido Harding, who is a conservative peer, who was involved with NHS procurement and then put in charge of NHS Track and Trace, which is the kind of facility that's supposed to find out what's happening to track people who have COVID and to test them and trace their contacts. She was put in charge of that. That hasn't gone very well. What ended up being happening was that has been rolled into a new body, which will replace Public Health England, which she will also head up without any appointment. So this is a kind of a peer, unappointed, kind of without any procurement process into a position and I think that's the big problem that you're seeing in in Britain is this kind of tendency to just look around the people next to you the people that you know and often they're people who are business contacts to get them in to do services and it doesn't seem to react to whether these things work or not so test and trace has really not been working very well a huge amount of it was outsourced to Circle which is a big logistics firm again very well politically connected and Circo don't have any experience in track and trace. So what they did was they outsourced it to around 30 companies. We don't know exactly how many companies because Circo refused to say and Department of Health and Social Care refused to say. And there's a bit of a suspicion that Matt Hancock's department actually doesn't know how many separate outsourcings there is of this. And this would all make sense, I think, if this was working. But the track and trace is now down to below 70%. When local authorities are doing it, it's around 97%. So there is evidence that keeping it in-house, getting local authorities to do this, works far better than outsourcing it. But the response has continually been to outsource it, and Circo have just been given yet another contract to do this. And there's, they're talking about stock prices of Facebook. Circo issued an unexpected kind of note to the market last Friday in which they said that they got more contracts and they expecting their predicted profits to rise much more than they had anticipated and their shares went value went up almost a fifth so there's a huge sense in which like failure and inability isn't penalized in this system because it's quite cronious you just get the people you know who've done all the other work for you and you continue on that circle and whether it works or not doesn't seem to be a huge issue I suggested that this isn't just a party political issue. I mean, I think some of it does go back to the Blair years. I mean, it's it's got some connection, I think, with the sort of principle of sofa government in a way that you you think it'll be more efficient if you do it with the people that you know and trust and that you have relationships with. And as you suggest, there's no evidence for that. There is no evidence that essentially doing politics through personal connections is more efficient. But do you think it's almost baked into the British way of doing government, that this is actually, this is the sort of ecosystem rather than this is a particularly either inefficient or cronyist government that we have at the moment? I think it can be both. And my sense is it probably is both. We have a way of doing things in Britain that does tend to kind of the same number of faces. Like I've been really surprised since I started doing this work I've done to produce my book and other work just how small this number of faces are. It's not a huge cast of characters who appear and reappear in lots of different guises with lots of different hats through British public life. And and, and Dido Harding is a great example of it. But there's lots of other characters who kind of recur a, a number of times. And I'm often thought that there's so many acts in British public life, unlike American, that 
you know, the play would never end probably. And so that's one aspect of it. And I think it is slightly baked into this kind of gentleman's club way of doing things. As someone who didn't grow up in, in Britain, it's something that really strikes you once you start engaging in almost any aspect of what you want to call British public life. You know, I was educated in a British university and, and worked as a journalist. So it's very striking how those ties bind and how important they are. But I also think there is aspects of this particular government that would, I think, go above and beyond what we've seen before. And I think it does very much come down from the top with this. Boris Johnson, more than almost any significant political figure of the last 25 years, has shown a shocking disregard for the quite threadbare rules and regulations around political life already. You know, so for example, if you are a former minister or a former senior civil servant and you take a job outside of government, you're supposed to get that vetted by a paper tiger called uh, Akuba. And they say yes to basically everything. You you can say, I'm going to go and work for the Saudis and I'm going to sell them arms and they will say yes to you. But Boris Johnson, when he resigned as foreign minister, he signed a contract to go back and become a, a columnist of the Daily Telegraph for £275,000 a year without running it past them. They kind of gave him a slap on the wrist and things continue on as before. This is a running theme with Boris Johnson. That's just one example. There's like a plethora of them. And it feels as if that way of doing things has become central to the Johnson administration. You've seen government ministers outside of a small handful become increasingly relegated to just their ability to parrot a message. It feels like Robert Jenrick still has a job because he will go out and defend what looks like the indefensible, and that's worth it. Gavin Williamson is still the education secretary, which I think in almost any other administration, he would have gone quite a long time ago too. So it feels like loyalty is placed above competence, but also placed above the perception of cronyism. And in my book, I actually wrote at length about the scandal that did for Liam Fox back in 2011, the Atlantic Bridge scandal. And I won't rehearse it all here, but suffice to say, the then Defence Minister was running a think tank in America and Britain, funded by what, what we could call dark money, anonymous donors. And it turns out that his best friend was attending all these meetings with him around the world as Defence Secretary, and this wasn't been registered. Cue a huge scrum on Fleet Street around this story became a really big story and a costly in Fox's job. I think I would find it very hard to see a story like that having the same impact it had then, now, and I think Liam Fox would have stayed in post. Just on that, I can claim no expertise whatsoever in this topic, but just Peter, when you said there that loyalty is priced above anything else, I mean, I suppose part of the problem, I suppose, is that people were appointed not on their competence or their ability, but because of how they voted on, you know, Brexit. But also, I, th- I think what I wanted to, to come back to really was, is there an extent to which this is kind of accumulation of, of, of sort of longer term trends that go back even before, David, you mentioned the Blair years, but even earlier than that, there's a strong strain among a certain school of political thought that the state isn't any good at things. And when politicians who broadly would be from that school of thought are in charge, that becomes a kind of self-fulfilling belief. So, you know, for years, there's been this idea that the role of the state is, people have said, steering, not rowing. So that is to say, it should broadly direct things, maybe send money to certain places, but basically leave it to external actors or private companies or whoever else to get things done. And now we actually need a strong state to sort of take some degree of control and do these kind of things. We find that it's been so hollowed out over the last 40 years that it can't do that confidently. And I would just be interested to know to what extent 
you think that kind of longer term trend ties in with what you're saying about you know the cronyism and and it being particularly bad with Boris Johnson's government? And if I could just add to that, I think it's also true that there's a and and this would cut across. So say we had a different government now. Say British politics has gone differently and. Conservatives were out of office and we had some coalition, a Labour, a Corbyn government, a Corbyn SNP government, doesn't matter, whatever it was. There's also, it's got something to do with the the growing and inbuilt suspicion of the civil service, which actually does cut across party lines. And the idea that you have to kind of bypass or get round the civil service to get things done, either because the civil service is ideologically suspicious of you or because it's got kind of entrenched inefficiency built into it. And I think that's been a big it's sort of underground rumbling theme in British politics for a while. And we're seeing some of the results of it now in this pandemic. That suspicion, that mistrust between government and bureaucracy produces, it doesn't produce more efficiency. I think both ways, it probably produces more cronyism. I think in some ways, those two points are connected as well. I would agree with Jennifer. I think there's been a long-term project around the hollowing out of the state. And one significant chunk of the Brexit vote. The Brexit vote as it exists in Parliament, I think, really coalesces around that. I think it's useful to think about the Brexit coalition as something that delivered the referendum result, but also the actual existing Brexit vote that exists in the British Parliament. And there was some really interesting research done recently by the UK in a Changing Europe project that looked at the views and attitudes and values of politicians and people and voters. And what they found when it came to the Conservative Party, was that Conservative politicians were far, far more libertarian than their voters. Their voters, when it came to things like their attitude to the state and their attitude to business, were quite, for want of a better word, centrist or sat in the centre ground. Conservative politicians sat far, far, far more on the libertarian spectrum of that. And what you mean by that is that they have less time for the state. They see the state as something inherently inefficient, something to be got out of the way of. You know, Matthew Elliott, who ran the Vote Leave campaign, he cut his teeth working for Grover Norquist back in the 1990s and early 2000s in DC. And Grover Norquist was very involved with, and Matthew Elliott had set up the Taxpayers Alliance before leading Vote Leave. Grover Norquist had been a kind of a Reaganite voice who famously said that he wanted to make the state so small that you could strangle it in a bathtub. And there is that kind of influence that goes through it, I think, and that's fed into the pandemic. The assumption has always been that the best thing to do, both in terms of a kind of cronious approach, but also in terms of what is the best thing to do, because it's an ideological belief, has been to look outside the state and to look to the private sector, because that is inherently the the right answer. So there's a kind of hollowing out that's taken place. But the civil service, I think, has become part of that too. The civil service, I think, in... What is it? I think it's an American libertarianism that kind of has seeped into Britain. Has seen it sees government, it sees federal workers in an American context, in a British context, the civil service, as also inherently quite lazy and feckless and incapable of doing those jobs that need to be done. And without having an exegesis of every Dominic Cummings blog, it's quite clear to see that A, Dominic Cummings is an incredibly influential person and character in British politics, and B, he does see the civil service broadly as lazy and feckless and ripe for a complete overhaul and revolution of it. And if you talk to civil servants, it's quite clear that there's a lot of demoralisation that's going on within the civil service, but it also speaks to a kind of cross-party sense in which the civil service are the enemies of the things that we want to do. And civil servants have been blamed time and again across 
different political factions. And they also provide, I think, quite an easy scapegoat for failings. You can blame it on the civil servants. But again, I think that's to say one of the differences with this current administration is you saw previously when something went wrong, there was a sense that the book stopped with the minister. If you look at the exams fiasco that we had in August with the algorithms and the A-level exam results, which wildly kind of basically landed up with a lot of people not getting a place in college, the head of Ofqual, the exams regulator, so basically the civil servant, she resigned, but the government minister, Gavin Williamson, kept his job. And I think so there's a kind of sense where the civil service has become even more of a punching bag and has become the thing that you can blame failure upon, which I think whoever comes after this, it could be very difficult to like, kind of remake. These are large, large institutions. Whitehall's a huge institution. To change that dynamic from the civil service being something that's blamed for, uh, for failures to something that you could want to go out and execute a fully thought out government policy, I think could be really, really difficult. This kind of hollowing out of the state and the civil service could be something that has a really, really long tail and not just like way beyond the pandemic. So that then leads to the last question I want to ask you, which takes us a bit back to where we started. I mean, not just a question about the regulation of big technology, but it's partly to do with that. This is a political system. So at the moment, the government has big reform plans for it, but um, it probably needs some reform in other ways, not least in the way in which we allow money and influence to sort of filter through the system. But the thing that has to reform it is the system itself. I mean, it's the classic problem of democratic politics, which is that it's not easy, but it's possible to come up with suggestions about the kinds of practical reforms or solutions that might make our democracy go better. But those reforms and solutions have to come out of our democracy. We can't impose them from the outside. So the system that we need to change is the thing that needs to come up with the change. And I'm I'm pretty skeptical that that happens very often. I'm not I'm not just talking about in the UK. It's you know the classic version of it is the US Constitution. The US Constitution probably needs a certain amount of reform. The trouble is the US Constitution and the way that checks and balances work in the American system makes reform really really hard. So Jennifer, do you have optimism that when you talk about different relationships between government and big technology firms and different forms of regulation, do you have any confidence that the system that needs those reforms has the capacity to generate those reforms? That's my question. I think in principle, yes, it does. I I think generally the biggest barrier to addressing this is kind of ideological in nature. People who don't want to regulate because they they don't see that it's the state's job to to regulate in that way. I think there's also a a serious problem in that when it comes to, for example, we were talking earlier about the micro-targeting. It's very difficult to get politicians to agree that changing micro-targeting would be a good thing because they all use micro-targeting. They all rely on it in their elections. They all use it to disseminate information or, or campaign material to their potential voters. So as you say, it's it's trying to get the system to reform from within. And that's very difficult. But I think if people wanted to regulate tech, then they could do that. But they choose not to for, the, for those reasons, I think. Peter, do you think a cronyist system can reform its cronyism? If you speak to politicians who are honest about this, they will say probably not. I think this is a huge problem with it. Even opposition politicians feel like there's something to gain for them within the current system, even if they think it's really broken. Like Jennifer mentioned about micro-targeting of ads, they go, okay, look, I I, I think it's a bad idea, but I use it and it works for me. 
And I think this is the fundamental problem, is the turkey is voting for Christmas aspect of it. Politicians do not want to change a system that has benefited them, even if they can recognize its huge, huge flaws. And I think the question is, how can you build a coalition or build enough of a head of steam around the issue to force politicians to actually do something about it? At the moment in Britain, the signs aren't great. There's a plethora as ever of commissions and inquiries into things like electoral regulation, into electoral reform going on in the Commons in the House of Lords. But the submissions to that would suggest that change is very, very unlikely. You know, the Conservative Party on their submission suggested abolishing the Electoral Commission altogether, which is the elections regulator. And it's kind of a sense of a, there are, these talking shops do happen a lot. And often what you get at the other end of it is a kind of tacit status quo. And I keep on wondering what's the moment within our democratic policy that will force some sort of change. And then you can start talking about the nuts and bolts of what could be done to change this. There's lots of great suggestions out there. There's lots of things that actually work in other parts of the world. But until you can get politicians to to, to vote for Christmas, you're going to really struggle to, to make much headway on it. Regular listeners will know that we have talked quite a lot over the past few years about Facebook and surveillance capitalism, including with Shoshana Zuboff, author of the book that defined the term. We will tweet links to those episodes. You'll also find them in our show notes, as always. If you'd like to hear me talking about something a little bit different, the LRB podcast this week features an episode in which I'm in conversation with the novelist Benjamin Markovitz, and we're talking about basketball, Michael Jordan, and the hot hand. You can find that at the LRB's website. Next week, Helen Thompson will be back. She and I will be talking about what Donald Trump means to us. And then it'll be the election, and we will be doing a morning after the night before episode. Do join us for all that. My name is David Brunsman and we've been talking politics. Peter, are you all right? I'm okay. Sorry, I've just moved you into my I've moved into the box room. Box room. This hopefully will be less echoey. It, well, it is well it's it's you've gone from the big the big room into the little room so hopefully that would make a difference how is that hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.